You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. This week, I'm talking to Millicent Souris, someone I have long wanted to make my friend. Millicent is, to me, just wildly cool. She talks about food equity and drinking bourbon, and there was no one I would rather talk to about the dichotomy of being politically engaged with food justice and also stocking your pantry with very nice olive oil. She's also one of my favorite food writers, period. Her pieces at Brooklyn Base, Bon Appetit, Diner Journal, they kind of redefine the genre. As a longtime line cook who now runs a soup kitchen and food pantry in New York City, she's someone who simply knows food, its highs and lows, and is cool as hell. Did I say that already? Hi, Millicent. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you, Alicia? Did I say your name right? Yeah. Actually, you, we should have done that before. I know. <laughs> yeah, my name is Millicent. And is Alicia correct for you? Yes, Alicia is correct. Great. I'm Alicia. Co- correct. No, yeah. yeah. I'm Alicia sometimes, but only if you're a Spaniard. So. <laughs> Fair. I'm not going to pretend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, I grew up in Baltimore County, north of Baltimore City, and in like Towson, Maryland, and Lutherville, Maryland, which is, of course, home to John Waters and Divine, and, and also in the country in north Baltimore County. So my dad's parents had immigrated from Greece, so I grew up eating like Greek food. And then my mom's family had a dairy farm. So I grew up drinking when I was up there, unpasteurized milk, which I would say about 10 years ago, I made the connection was raw milk Mm -hmm. and like country food, you know, like my grandfather would grow his own corn and tomatoes and zucchini. And that would be summertime. We ate a lot of crabs in the summer because it's Maryland. And and then also like oysters were definitely a part of of my mom's family, like we'd have oyster stuffing and raw oysters at Thanksgiving because um, her dad would bring them and chuck them. But then also, because it's the 70s and 80s, like straight up shitty American processed food was like a gift, you know, for yeah. our household because my mom worked and my dad worked. And there's three of us and like, you know, even on the farm, like my uncle and his wife, they would buy steakums even though they had like ground beef from the steers that they sent sent to slaughter. You know, like we would drink tang and we ate like Stouffer's lasagna. So it was a real hodgepodge, I think, of all that stuff. And then there was when my mom left my dad, then there was the episode called Divorce Food, which was like (laughs) lean cuisines and hamburger helper and lechoy and a lot of mandarin oranges and tins. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Was that on your mom's side? That was on my mom's side. And then my dad would just take us to like his friend's restaurants or bars and we'd eat there. (laughs) My parents, when they got divorced, I always say when I I knew something was going wrong when my mom started to make instant mashed potatoes. Yeah. I was already like 20. So like it wasn't like. I was a kid, but I, you know, what it was, it's always in, seared in my mind that the instant mashed potatoes were like the beginning of the end. It's the of tell. The marriage. It's the tell. Yeah. <laughs> Except I, when I did eat instant mashed potatoes, and I think I was 21 when I first had them, I was like, what is this magical stuff that just turns into <laughs> mashed potatoes? 
No, it's super cool. It's, I mean, yeah. science. It's science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as you were just talking about the dairy and also your, you, uh, your family had a bar as well, you know, how did you end up in food? Personally. I ended up in food. Uh, I mean, my yaya would cook like it for sources started as a restaurant in like 1934. Mm-hmm. And so it was like classic Greek restaurant, which is American food and then like Greek specials. And then yeah. when my dad made it a bar, there were like there was a grill, but there was a flat top behind the bar. And so my yaya would make like totally frozen hamburgers, but she'd also have like really good avgalemonal soup. But mm-hmm. I didn't. I was just a kid and like, I didn't really take in all of that. So I don't have that. Like, it would be really cool if I could lie and be like, and then that (laughs) romantic version of food. I got a job at the Royal Farm Store. It was my first job on the books when I was 14. And um, that was like, that was like the convenience store that had fried chicken and JoJo's. And then you take the leftover fried chicken and break it up and make chicken salad. So that like, that was my first job in food. And it Everyone who worked there hated it. And and it was like cleaning cases of frozen chicken thighs and cutting potatoes and deep frying a lot of stuff. And then our neighbors owned a luncheonette in a pharmacy. And I remember working there and being blown away by making like salad dressing from scratch. Right. So what I knew is that I I would always have a job in food because I was willing to do that hard work. And for girls, like and like teenage girls, like I would never be hired to be the counter person or a waitress because I wasn't cute. Like I was tall and big and strong and fat, you know, and like this is not now. This was the late 80s. Yeah. And like no one was no one like would hire me to be their waitress, but I could always work in the kitchen. And so right. I, it's not anything I verbalized. It's just something that I knew that I could always get kitchen jobs. I know that's not really like <laughs> passionate, but you know, you got to make money. Right. Well, did passion emerge for it? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I found a land that made sense to me, you know, like right. I remember living one summer and working, um, finding a job at, uh, I kind of lived in Portland, Maine, and I was in this place, Gritty McDuff's, which was a brew pub <laughs> and it's still there. And, um, English style pub food and just working like you're just working with a bunch of Heshers, you know, and a bunch of like you're hanging out, listening to music. You're working hard. You're kind of gross. Your skin's not great. You didn't get a lot of sleep because you had to work the prep shift. But, you know, I remember working with a guy where when Black Sabbath would come on, we'd take the um, the melted butter and the brush on it and turn off the lights and like hit the grill and the flames would come up. And it just like, (laughs) I don't know, it was that moment, like, it's just fun in somewhere that felt free when there's not a lot of places to be free, you know? Yeah. And so I knew that. And then when I moved to New York 17 years ago, I helped someone open a restaurant. And like, I've just always been like, I'm a good worker. Everything like made sense for me. So I do. Like when I talk about food, a lot of it, I talk about work, but there has to be a sustained level of like, the community of people that you're working with and that you're buying from and that you're feeding and also like the food itself that is passionate. It's just, that's not just, I'm not one of those people who like has that language, you know, who's just like, I'm not very over the top with language about like myself and like what Mm -hmm. I like. 
But yeah. don't worry, there's plenty of people who have that covered, you know? <laughs> I'm one of them, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you worked in restaurant kitchens for years. You write, uh, you've curated social justice film series. You've been a DJ. Now you're you're cooking. You're, you, you know, I, well, how would you describe what you do now? Right now, I mean, I work at a food pantry in a soup kitchen. And before the pandemic, I've been there for over five years. And I came on as a yeah. consultant to do a culinary job training program. We didn't didn't work and it didn't get more funding. But I was like, I was the only person there who had worked in restaurants. So I kind of had an eye for the food. And I was like, yeah, I can work here part time and we can get more produce and rescue food and things like that. Get more produce to people, take care of the food better, increase our capacity for produce. And then I did that and then the pandemic hit and then it was like that times a million with just like, you know, the whole world shut down. So where's all the food going to go and all the pantries shut down. So we just got dropped all this food. So then I became um, then it just became something different. So now, I mean, I don't even cook there. I just I'm like the facilitator of the palates, you know, and trying to like. There's a good grant that came out of the um, pandemic called the Nurse New York grant. And I think that's permanent now. And it was to really just keep the state going. And you have to spend it on New York state products. And this grant, like the director and the head of the pantry, they were just like, what are we going to spend this money on? I was like, I got this. I got this. Give this to me. (laughs) Please let me let me have let me buy things and not have it all just be like donated Tyson, like evil meat. So those grants I take care of, and I like to think it balances out all of the like super gross food bank tax write-off for giant companies. Yeah. And really just because I've consulted on restaurant kitchens, like I have a good eye for logistics in space. And so we just had to switch our entire building over to be a warehouse. And I was like, the chapel can hold pallets and the waiting area can hold pallets. And if we open this up, we can fit pallets through here. So just like really nerdy shit, you know? Yeah. And also where all the food goes. Uh, so that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on now. And now it's hopefully something new will happen. Well, that grant is really interesting. Living here in Puerto Rico, coming from New York, I'm always thinking about how, well, I never know if it's enough or if it's like actually good, what New York State has done to support local agriculture around the state and 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 craft stuff I know I'm like, well, they support it in some way. So that's good. Like, whereas here you have, there's nothing there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But so from this grant sounds really great, but you know, is there, what, what more should the state be doing in your mind to, to kind of help that? Well, this grant's great also because I still remember the moment of you know, you're talking about farmers or processors or bakers and truckers and and people were like, thank you, you know, because there was yeah. nothing. And for all the people making food and growing food, all the restaurants were closed. So there was nowhere yeah. for any of it to go. I mean, you never forget. I'll never forget like the first couple of times that different truck drivers were just like, thank you for being open. Mm-hmm. So that grant is permanent. And that's a really important grant because in terms of, you know, everyone's like supply chain, supply chain. And then we see what horrible things happen when we're dependent upon such consolidated supply chain and how yeah. like, you know, the Trump administration got OSHA to lift their fucking regulations and 
uh, Tyson poultry workers had to process more chickens per minute, Mm -hmm. you know, and that that there was no safety for them. And also that was all the fear of like, this is America. (laughs) Everyone has to have chicken. No one can go hungry. Where actually it's like, no, tons of people go hungry. But to be able to have like the, the means, like the tangible food system that you can see, I think more so is so important. In terms of the state, I mean, I do see some holes in what's available, you know, mm-hmm. and I do have some ideas, but I don't want to share them here because, you know, <laughs> you get paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it's, yeah, and it's like we can't just, it can't just be like restaurants and people who shop at the farmers market to support right. farms. Yeah, because. Those people have summer homes somewhere else, and they also have the ability to just pick up and go somewhere when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's very complicated. But I'm glad to hear that that's happening. That's that's like that's yeah. I wish <laughs> it's also I'll say also for a lot of farms and things like that, it has skewed yeah. their and like I work with a headwater hub. Like there's more infrastructure for school look for schools and um food pantries and institutional food which also Mm -hmm. because of like brigade is like turning into something that's so much more important in terms of like school foods and things like that and we need that we can't just be like fucking neoliberal people who care about what they eat and are you know like it's so short-sighted like the food the food scene, which sometimes feels like the food system is so short-sighted and like individualistic, it's gross. Yeah. Well, you did write an essay sort of about this in Bon Appetit in 2019, you know, where you wrote about finding kind of a balance. I don't know if it was about you finding a balance, but like, you know, what is that, that balance that between the olive oil and and hunger? And And I think about this, of course, as a food writer where it's like, you know, you know, what am I selling people on? Like, what is it that I want to sell people on basically when it comes to food? Is it just that having a good olive oil is, is sufficient? Of course it's not, you know, but you know, for you, where is, where are the, what are the gaps here that, that need to be filled in when we talk about food? I mean, the gaps are major. (laughs) Well, I feel like there's personal consumption, right? And there's personal consumption that I prefer, and I know that, like, man, I know on paper, and if I told any of my coworkers, like, the price of a glass of wine that I drink, where they're like, I'm like yeah. just some bougie white person, you know? But so I, I, but also personal consumption is not about production and political right. and politics and everything like that. I don't quite know how to say that great, but like, look at how much food writing there is. Look at, look at, how people's lives are curated and the people who are like have the most influence and are influencers, they only talk about political issues when they need to to stay relevant or unless it's something that they actually care about where they're like abortion, abortion, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, Black Lives Matter when, you know, especially two years ago. But the amount that we discuss food in conjunction with the amount of people who are hungry And hunger can be such a vague thing, especially in this country, right? Like before, generally it was like 10 to 12% America. You're like, but to Mm -hmm. me in in New York, your neighbor is hungry. You know, you are moving into a neighborhood 
you are opening a restaurant in a place where you have to just, where so many people are just like, that's just what that corner's like. And I think that there's ambition. And I think the city begs people, if you have ambition to willfully ignore things, but the amount that food is written about. And like, I would say now, like Grub Street and Eater and those places, now they're all also consolidated under the same food media group, right? Before it used to be more competitive and they used to just be kind of like, a real content machine and more like 24 seven, you know, cause everyone's like, I can be on the internet all the time. And <laughs> once it's out of the bag, then you're stuck with it. Let's mm-hmm. just say Salt Bay. He'll never go back. Yeah. He'll never go away because someone's just like, <laughs> look at this guy. And then now he's there and he's validated. But think of all, all the people who got validated and all the shit that we talk about. And we can choose so much of what we want to consume now everywhere and reading and like it's it's great to read about you know it's great to read about things that don't ultimately matter because the things that matter are so painful and it's only during like a shutdown that we actually have like this bandwidth to care about it i mean the food media is just they're just most of them are content creators they shouldn't be able to write about anything that has any politics or systematic issues and anything to do with like actual workers you know, mm-hmm. who are they? They're not journalists. <laughs> no, it's inter- It's an interesting thing because I think right now everyone is always asking me like, well, well, asking me personally, do I consider myself a food writer? And then asking like, what is a food writer? And I think that it's important to, I mean, I'm aware of like the market forces that, that create certain types of content and, and how you have, what you have, you have to do things in order to have a career at all. Of course, you have to then ask the question, if I have to do this, why do I want this to be my thing that I do all the time? Um, why don't I do something else? And so it's, it's difficult because, you know, a lot of food writers will say, I just want to write a recipe and, and, and just look cute and, and like get things sent to me and that shouldn't be a problem. And I'm like, for me, it, you know, it is a problem. And I've, I've written about this, that, that food writers don't at large have a consciousness, like even a basic consciousness that comes through in their work around climate change, around hunger, around, you know, conditions of, of factory farming around, around like any ecological significance to anything. It's sheer consumption. Exactly. And like, that's becoming more and more, I think because we're in this like vague, uh, post pandemic moment. And so things are sorting, sort of going back to normalcy in terms of what gets covered. And it's just restaurants, 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 like cookbooks, cookbooks, cookbooks. And then there's like, I, uh, that moment where we were going to talk about the conditions of the labor conditions and the supply chains. And and that, that moment seems like it's, it was, it's just going away. Like now it's no longer relevant. It's gone. And like, I mean, you and I both really love Alice Driver and she's working, she and her partners are working on that book. And I yeah. am kind of stunned by the consistency in which that topic, because I thought it would be like one article and out. And if you all don't yeah. know about Alice Driver, you got to sign up for her. She's an amazing writer and she has interviewed poultry workers and consistently interviewed them. And she's worked with a photographer yeah. who takes portraits of them. And they like, she's been reporting this since the beginning. I mean, I think we're kind of a bunch of bitchy dilettantes, you know, and I think that we have been taught that you cannot hold all of this. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really believe in balance because nothing seems balanced, (laughs) but like 
But what you were talking about before, like, how do I do these things? And I know I have to do this. Well, we certainly have to have joy, you know, and sometimes joy can't be just like, and trust me, I know because I've been doing working at a food pantry in the last two years during COVID, like there has to be joy. It's too hard to live like this all the time. But the sheer consumption and the way that the world is created it's so easily for us on phones and the internet of everything is so unsustainable, climate-wise, food-wise, content-wise. Mm-hmm. And our escapism isn't escapism in, anymore. It's our reality. And yeah. that's a problem because if everyone can be some fucking content creator and influencer, is it possible that everyone's ability to figure out a way to survive like this means that we don't have anyone actually doing the real work? And yeah. that's why this world sucks so hard. I mean, the fact that Alice Driver doesn't didn't have a column like immediately, you know, reporting ongoingly like, about the conditions when she was on the ground in Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, with the workers at Tyson. Like that is such a damning fact of food media is that that wasn't like some editor's like dream to have someone on the ground. Just be like, Alice Driver, tell us about this, you know? Yeah. And for, because you guys, the answer isn't for all of us to buy sustainably raised chicken. The answer is for the conditions to be better for all workers and all chickens, you know? Yeah. And that individual, individualist notion of, shopping, which, you know, was in the early aughts was really just like, you're not going to change the world. It's such a neoliberal neoliberal approach towards eating that your trip to the farmer's market is changing systems. It's only changing you, your system, your house. Yeah. And that's, that's all part of it. You know, like we're so broken right now. I mean, I think we've always been broken but we're so broken because the people who think that they're doing good work kind of really aren't, you know, and they're like, <laughs> I think of them as really affluent people and they walk amongst us. I'm around them in New York all the time. I'm friendly with a lot of them or I might be friends with them. They might think I'm their friend, but they're not the one percenters. So they don't think they're part of the problem, but they are part of the problem because they're not doing anything. And they actually their comfort is what allows so many things to happen. Like, if they actually wanted change to happen, it would happen more because the one percenters are untouchable to us, you know, unless there's crazy, systematic, governmental and worldwide changes. That's why they're one percent. They're like, I have so much money. I'm going to be on the moon. You can't touch me. (laughs) But the affluent people who are never still are never rich enough and someone already always owns one more house than they do. They're the ones who pat themselves on the back because they read all the books. They went to some marches. Their kids have black friends. You know, they're doing all the good stuff and they care, but they're not really sacrificing anything. They're not really doing anything to really change stuff. Yeah. And right now, sometimes I hone, I some, you know, I get a little tunnel vision, but I'm like, <laughs> you guys got to do some shit. And it's not what you yeah. think you should do because it's never is what you think you should do because you're still very self-centered. <laughs> this is I'm reading a book called The Imperial Mode of Living, which is what you're describing basically, oh, which really? is that yet the way we live in the west or you know the global north is uh, on the backs of so much exploitation and ecological destruction that we don't see and then yeah and it doesn't matter what class you are necessarily if and and exporting also the um 
the idea of this mode of living as the good life, quote unquote, being like basically a, a means of ecological destruction, like yes. like our way of living and consuming and just thinking about things is the part of climate change, part of destruction. Like people, and and I understand it, but like people, when I've written or said anything about, you know, the way people will regard their access to the tropical as sort of a human right. Yeah. Like, you know, just they need the release or the the idea of a vacation to buy a cocktail or a piece of fruit that they probably just shouldn't have. And so, or, or a vacation, et cetera. But like um, people do treat that as though it is their God-given right to have that. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and they do it, they're like, I mean, that Noma pop-up in Mexico City. Right. <laughs> was it, or no, it wasn't in Me- it was in Tulum. Tulum, Tulum yeah. has no infrastructure for what it has now. It certainly doesn't for a bunch of people who like need to go to that. Look at yeah. all the people who have moved to L.A. I mean, look at California. We just have a straight up fire season, and like mm-hmm. all the people who moved to L.A. It's like, did you move to L.A. because you like the weather and because then you can have tomatoes all year round? Like. <laughs> it's kind of a bratty existence. It's very. To think it's it's a very, if you can hear my neighbors come home from school, it's a very like, <laughs> but it's a very, it's still consumption, you know? But also yeah. what's fascinating yeah. is that this is all also done under the mode of health, you know, yeah. wellness and health and like, oh, I get these mangoes or I have to go here. And, and it's like, you know, the rest of us, we're just having drinks and maybe there's a cigarette or maybe there's some weed and (laughs) more drinks, but we're not doing it for, we're not like, well, I mean, it's wellness for a lot of us. Um, Right. But we're not lying to ourselves about, you know, that, like that, that pedestal of wellness. Yeah. 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 It's no, it's interesting. Well, because especially here, here in Puerto Rico, where, you know, there's so much gentrification and displacement because of people who come and get tax breaks for starting their businesses here. But it's been restructured so that some some actual Puerto Ricans can take advantage in some ways, but at the for the for a long time it's been you have to have not lived in Puerto Rico for like a, this consecutive amount of years before 2019 or something. Like it was like, uh, or it went into effect in 2012. But but you pay like a four zero to four percent tax rate, and you don't pay federal taxes because you become a bona fide resident of Puerto Rico. And then these are the people paying two thousand dollars for a studio. So that like now none of our friends live anywhere near us because they've been completely priced out, you know. Well, it's, it's all the loopholes. I mean, it's like everyone who yeah. holds on to their apartment, even though they moved upstate because it's their Airbnb. And you're like, or someone could live there. Live there. Yeah. You know, my <laughs> old apartment in Greenpoint, I've had the lease on that. I'm pretty sure my old landlord's not listening to this. <laughs> Since I moved here and when I moved out, my friend lives there. And yeah, because I'm like, you're not going to find anything it's rent stabilized you're like you're not going to find anything this affordable I mean and that's also interesting because I think about that I thought about that before the pandemic where the food pantries in Bed-Stuy you know and we're across there's a rehab across from us and then there's like right to the right of us there's a lot of brownstones that a lot of like Mm -hmm. gentrifiers live in and it's like you're the ones who moved here because this this soup kitchen's been here in this building for like over 14 years, and the rehab's been here, you know. But also, what happens when people become displaced further and further away from the place that gives them the food that they need and the right. services that they need, and where are they going? 
And how much further displacement can the city handle or Puerto Rico or, you know. Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. And then I think, I mean, I think about that so much is how, and I have moved in my life, like being able to move freely and kind of make decisions based on, you know, where you're trying to, you know, just moving around is such a privilege. And we don't actually talk about that. Right. I think that the people who, the media voices that we hear the most are like the worst representational voices of who most of the people are. Right. I think that most of us are living like pretty fraught financial lives. I think that if you actually have student loans, I think that we're haves and have nots now, you know, and if you have student loans, you have to actually work for money and not just work for like what you hope your life is. Mm -hmm. But the voices that we hear the most that tell us like where to eat, what Airbnb to, you know, who have like the most exposure are the people we should listen to the least. The least, yeah. (laughs) But it's really interesting because people, like those people are successful. People want, they have a huge audience. People want that. And that's what's troubling to me. (laughs) Like, I mean, as a a person who does, who's a writer and then like I have to sell myself a little bit, like the, I think I've come around now to being like, I'm done even trying to sell myself. You know, I'm like, what is, is, and, and, whatever will be, will be. And so for sure, but the, yeah, the idea that that's, that's a a popular mode of engaging with the world is so troubling to me existentially because (laughs) it's just like, we don't want to grapple with reality. We don't. And, and, and it, it becomes increasingly uh, more necessary to do so. Well, it's the question of, do we not want to grapple with reality or are we still having problems with, because people are, people are drawn to your work, you know, like, yeah, and people are, are drawn and there's this, people will be like, that person's so real, but people are definitely <laughs> drawn to it. You know, which came first? Is it like the influencer or the following or the escapism and the like right. inability to deal with reality? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's definitely a chicken or egg thing. It's yeah. a chicken or egg thing, but. I was reading an older essay that was in The Times, written by a woman who had moved upstate before the pandemic. And I was like, New York Times, isn't it time to stop just publishing this voice? Because this voice, yeah. how is do we really have that many like white women in their 40s who we should be listening to about moving upstate and how they're ahead of the COVID people? But <laughs> you know, because there's a slight patting on the back of like, I wasn't part of that wave. And it's like, well, are you actually doing something? Are you writing about it? You know, and it, but I'm like, it's the Times choice. And I'm like, don't do that. And then I saw that, was it the Times? They uh, published something by a Chinese American person who, it was all about the subway. And it was, it was great. It was, and it was about the Sunset Park shootings, but just how this person like has taken the subway his entire life and how that mode of transportation is important. But for a moment, I was just like, oh my God, they got an op-ed by someone who lives on the subway. And don't take that away from him, Eric <laughs> yeah. Adams and the NYPD, yeah. you know, and we're, I mean, look at it, like media and all the people up top, how many people do they know? They just know, like, yeah. it is still super gatekeeper Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's hard. And I mean, I wanted to ask too, because, you know, you you've written that, you know, 
Brooklyn is such a place of of stark dichotomies in terms of, you know, you have the new restaurants and the extreme wealth and you have 20% of its pandemic population food insecure before the pandemic. And, you know, there was this moment of like kind of what we were talking about, but there was also this moment where hunger was on the forefront of the conversation, like community fridges and mutual aid and, and that sort of thing. Like, has that died down or, you know, what what is kind of the conversation? What is the landscape like? That is de- definitely died down and it started to die down and people had to go back to work. Right. And like, but also like the community fridges kind of blew too big, too fast. You know, like we, yeah, we worked with a bunch of community fridges and there was a lot of like in vogue writing about them and anyone could open them, but they also need a community to sustain them. So yeah, they kind of yeah. ballooned and, and some have closed. Mutual aid, there's still there's still smaller groups that are really dedicated to their mutual aid and working with people and especially working with people um, who are being kicked out of shelters and like all the really terrible things that the city is doing and different tenants unions. Yeah. I feel like like what really emboldened me over the past two years was how radicalized a lot of people became and young right. and like younger people like I'm 48. OK, so I'm Gen X. I think we've got like the boomers move on, <laughs> you know. Gen X, like, we're going to die before the boomers because that's just, they got all the good stuff and we're just (laughs) depressed. But it feels like a lot more people have been radicalized. But now the question is, is like, I mean, it's a small percentage that I feel like is left because now I'm just, I'm like, now that people are kind of (laughs) going back to their like really kind of decadent made for, made for Instagram ways. Yeah. But things are really bad for people in this city. And there's not a lot of support. And I guess that's the part where I'm like, you have to be so willfully blind to people as you walk by them to not think that there's problems and to still say so committed to whatever you think your life is supposed to be. Right, right. And for me, I was just really tired of feeding rich people, you know, like working in restaurants. It was always like a community and like people like feeding you know, feeding friends and feeding community and whatever. And then it just became like rich people. And I don't like rich people. <laughs> when did that, when did that shift happen? Do you feel like you, you, you felt that shift in, in terms of who was able to go to restaurants? I don't think so. I mean, I think that I challenged myself to work outside. Like I worked in Brooklyn restaurants for a while and it was when there were a lot of like, you know, artists opening things because the rents were low. Mm-hmm. And then that slowly changed. And I was really tired of how homogenous the kitchens were, where it was just like, this is all the same guy with the same liberal arts education and and everybody's the same. And then yeah. I would go and then I went to Manhattan and I tried to like learn more. And I was I mean, it was way more intense. It was all it was, it's all intense. But <laughs> I think there was just a point where I'm like, I don't like anyone here anymore. You yeah. know, like. I'm not looking for validation from food upset. I don't know. Because also, when I moved here, it's not like I went out to restaurants all the time. I just worked in one. Yeah. But I knew that when I was in the kitchen, you know, friends that would come in or people in the neighborhood that would come in at different kitchens and things like that. But like through elevating or going into different restaurants or whatever, even just the concept of elevated, I just didn't, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And I don't care for the status of it. You know, and also like I was never the person who got the status of it. Because right. I wasn't the chef or I wasn't the owner or I wasn't anyone. You know, for me, what's always been so confusing about food, you know, I read Kitchen Confidential when I worked in a kitchen when I was 27. 
And I totally got it because I also grew up going to bars like my dad's place. And when we would go to Rehoboth Beach, we'd go to the Rusty Rudder and like count the bartender's tips. Like I've been going to bars since I was born. So I got Kitchen Confidential. And then I just didn't understand when I moved here why no one, you know, I grew up on a farm. I grew up in the business and I've worked, but no one was ever interested in me and writing about me or talking to me or anything that I wrote. I mean, I can only assume it's because I'm not making anyone feel good about anything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> they don't like that. Or if they, if they, the way that they like it is that you have to be, it has to make people feel edgy and you have to be like super charming. And yes, I'm really charming, but like, I'm not going to blow smoke up anyone's ass to make them feel better about like how hard it is to be a farmer or work the line or anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, I, that's so interesting. I feel like that's, it's a, for me, I think leaving New York and kind of like getting away from it made me, made it a lot easier for me to divest from like traditional notions of success as a, as a writer or as a food writer. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's been so freeing, which is great, but uh, you know, just to, you know, yesterday, like the, the James Beard media nominations came out or whatever. And someone was like, I can't believe Alicia Kennedy's newsletter has been, I'm like, I didn't submit. I didn't pay $150. You have to submit, right? (laughs) Yeah. You have to submit. Oh my, I gotta say that I'm like, (laughs) I learned about that through one of your podcasts about submitting and how you have to pay because I was like, I'm sorry, are you telling me that neither you nor I in the year 2020 of what we wrote about food, (laughs) are you saying that wasn't, that shouldn't be in an anthology? I mean, I'm not a very hubris person, but I'm like that shit that I wrote about the like partially dry aged duck that I got. Yes. During shutdown and like that two part thing. And like, like nobody's writing that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody's writing that. Nobody is coming at it from that. Nobody's experiencing that dystopia and writing about it. There were plenty of people experiencing dystopia for sure. But it's you got to pay to play. And yeah. And how do you so if you always have to pay to play, then you just have the same people in the room. And even if they're different people, they have to do the same things. So how are they ever going to be different? Or there's a fucking scholarship. You know, but you're still working with the same systems of like, why are, you know, restaurants are perfect. You're like, you just want them to be perfect so you can always go to them and feel good about stuff. But they're based in ultimate exploitative work. Yeah. They're based out of people who couldn't afford servants but didn't want to cook all the time. That's what restaurants are. And the systems are all the same. And the people who try to keep opening the systems up, they still want themselves to be the gatekeepers. You know, like that's and that's the media. That is totally the media The like the person who was criticizing all the memoirs by white chefs, white female chefs. And it's like, well, you're still here because you're going to gatekeep who the black female chef whose memoir you're going to do. You know, like you guys still just want to be the gatekeepers and make sure that you stay relevant. Because you have to stay relevant so you have status, so that you stay relevant so you have status, so you can still make money. And your perspective of moving to Puerto Rico kind of broke that. And for me, I feel like I was still trying to chase that to be like an outlier. But I was still like, 
Like the only reason why I was in Bon Appetit is because a friend of a friend, my friend was having like a pie contest at his shop to raise money where I worked. And then like, it wasn't because anyone at Bon Appetit was interested in me. It was a friend mm-hmm. of a friend who's connected, who hooked me up with someone. Yeah. And then anytime I pitched to them, they were like, no, no, no. But they were like, tell us about the poor people. How's it going? <laughs> oh. But I, so I had access, but only in one way. And then I feel like the mm-hmm. pandemic kind of like, I was like, Millicent, you're part of the problem because you want to be invited to everything. I mean, I'll spike crash any party. You know, it's uh-huh. fun. But <laughs> I wanted to be the kind of classic, I mean, this is a very white male thing, outlier. Yeah you know, but Mm -hmm. who's still invited to everything and has status and like. But you only get to be that if you're a white male. You only get to be that if you're a white male or like there's a couple, there's a couple females. There's like one who's grandfathered (laughs) in, but you only get to be that. And I was like, I was like, my, my desire for status is not helping me and it's not helping anything. Right. And so I'm like, fuck status. Yeah. It's more freeing. And it's, but yeah. it's also something I have to keep in check. I mean, I'm always interested when you write about like Vogue or the New York Times. And I think for, for a lot of us who feel like we're outside and like, how do we participate in these institutions? Like, man, if I was ever in the New York Times, my mom would be so excited. I've been yeah. a part of restaurants that are in the New York Times and I've never been mentioned. And like, it's so meaningful to our family when that happens. And also I would imagine for me at some point, but I'm not going to pretend like that's ever going to happen. There's such weird relationships with those institutions. Oh, yeah. Super weird. Like I, yeah, for me, it's always like, okay, it's nice to be seen because it it just allows me to keep doing my work. You know, like yeah. the more, like if everyone stops seeing me, then then I don't get to do it anymore. For you sure. Know? And um, for me, and I've been really lucky, of course, like I, I, I wrote, my book will come out eventually. Who the hell knows? Um, and supply chain issues, right? <laughs> no, supply chain issues and edit, like issues of I don't, I don't, I don't know if the funny thing is to have your book like sort of pre mentioned in the New York Times, like in the T Magazine by Lagaya Mashan, who's a fantastic food writer. And the like, but I like my publisher doesn't talk to me, so I don't actually know anything. And like, I'm like, I think like you would think they'd want to get the book out by me because I like have, have had a like moment of like success and and like should write it, but like no, they're making you doggy I just have, paddle. I have to keep it. Yeah, I have to just keep going. And my like, they're making when, you doggy paddle. They're like, when they're in like, my life keep your will head I up, stop? keep your head up, keep your head up. <laughs> and then right when you're like. I can't do this anymore. They're like, don't worry, we got you a PR person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but like, until then, I must uh, just, doggy paddling is the best fucking metaphor for that, for how it feels like. Because it's, it's it's you know, I don't want to be a food writer because I want everyone to look at me. I just want to talk about things, you know? That's what I like to do. <laughs> well, and I, I really like how you've loosened that up for you. I mean, like two years ago, we both know, I think, Melissa McCart from, she's an right, editor yeah. and she's great. And I had written some things for Heated and she was like, you should be writing all the time. And I was also like, yeah. well, I am out working during a deadly <laughs> virus pandemic and trying to not kill my partner or yeah. anyone I work with and <laughs> trying to figure out, like, we're we're nowhere and we're everywhere. 
and I couldn't. And I, I, I had to let go of that feeling that like, I need to capitalize on this moment because I had to figure out a new way to take care of myself or else I wouldn't yeah. have been able to do what I do. And it was also like so physically brutal of like just moving food. And I kind of gave that to myself instead of being like, I could have been somebody. Like yeah. I was like, yeah. I was like, I just, I can't, I just got to survive this. Yeah. 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 It's a hard negotiation. It definitely is. It definitely is. I yeah. mean, hopefully I change that or, ho- I mean, I'm, my goal is to write more and to actually like have a newsletter. Like I've just, I think like two months ago, I was like, shut up, Millicent, just stop qualifying it and being like, there's too many newsletters. And what if, you know, just do it. <laughs> Yours would be wildly different from anyone else's though. Well, because I'm writing anyway, you know? Yeah. But, but yeah, it, they make it, they make it hard. Does it ever, I mean, how does anyone read all the newsletters? I do. I mean, I'm, I, because I was a copy editor at New York Magazine, a digital copy editor, I became a very, very fast reader. You're such a good like, reader too. But the the reason I can read fast is because of that job. Like I, I would have to read like 10,000 words of like TV recaps before 9am. So like, <laughs> I mean, let's just talk about that for a second. When I was yeah. in my twenties, there was one person who had a job doing TV recaps. Heather, yeah. what's her last name? She's a great writer. She writes for Heather Haverlaski. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask Polly. Yeah. She she yeah. would write about it. Now that can be a job for everyone. But shouldn't yeah. someone who has a job writing TV recaps be in charge of like making society better instead of yeah. writing TV yeah. recaps? <laughs> no, I think who is uh Mindy Isser? She did she she is a great human. She's a, she's a great writer too, but she, she's, um, like a lab, I think she's a labor organizer, but she was on Twitter the other day, like re quote tweeting someone who was like, every job deserves like, uh, deserves respect. It's like, or every job is a valid job, something like that. And she's like, actually a lot of people should be doing something else. Like they, instead of being on their computers, they should be planting trees. And, and I agree for myself even like, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about having the freedom of like what I do. And now that I have my, my book is done. And so I don't feel like I'm going to die every day, but like I, (laughs) cause that's how that felt. But, um, like I need to put my energy, my excess time and energy and free, you know, existence into doing something to make the world better, not to like, like make anything better for my, like as things for me are as good as they're probably going to get unless like, you know, I like, and I, so I got to like, okay, I have extra time and extra. So I got to put that energy somewhere where it'll do good for the world. Like, and, and I'm, I'm going to figure that out, but um, <laughs> I'm trying I think to that always, I feel like that always, that's the balance, you know? Yeah. And like when people are like, don't you feel good about yourself? And I was like, no, I don't feel good about myself. Yeah, the world is hell. No. But yeah, we can't all we can't just write TV recaps. Sorry, TV yeah. recap people. I read you. But <laughs> that used to be a 20 years ago. Like w- there was only one. And now it's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's there. There is needs to be a big um, transfer of energy yes. for doing things that actually matter. Um, and I feel it for myself and I feel it for the world. And and I think a lot of people feel it, you know, I mean, even before, you know, years ago, I think I was, a lot of people find a lot more satisfaction in, in jobs that are physical, like it jobs or, or doing work that is, is not considered prestigious yes. than they do find in the job they do that gets them more money. And, and of, co- of course you want to make a, a amount of money that makes you comfortable. I mean, there's a difference obviously between being comfortable and being like a hoarder, but like, 
you know, there's, there's a reason for that. You want to, it's a way of protecting yourself and it's a way of protecting your loved ones is to have a job that pays you a salary that is comfortable and that that's an ever changing goalpost, especially with inflation, et cetera. But like how much more satisfaction, like in my life did I get when I was like baking or when I was bartending than I get from like tapping on a computer? I mean, I don't know the visceral aspect. And I think it's also because I feel the same, like I can be a real heady person, but that's what I liked line cooking. That's what the day, like, like there's a certain point where like, I love working with my body and I'm just like, it's a different relationship with it because it's also a relationship not built out of being seen and how do you look, but how do you function and what can you do and how strong are you? And that's such a better way to live in your body for me, which is also the work I've done. You know, like I had moments of being a real egghead, yeah. but I've taken care of cows. You know, I've worked in restaurants like when I worked at a record distributor, there was certainly a lot of moving of boxes of records. And like that is whenever I'm living like that, it's better. But then there's also like the capitalist exploitative line where you're like, and you crossed it and now I'm crumpling. (laughs) Which is something that restaurants are really good at doing. Yes. Well, I mean, to talk about your writing work, you, the issue of Diner Journal, Deer Island, about doing private chef work upstate, I think upstate, right? When I say upstate, I mean New York. It was in the Adirondacks. So it's like upstate, but not like upstate. It's like closer to Canada, like around Lake Placid. Oh, okay. Wow, that's, yeah. It was great because it was mainly free of anyone from New York. (laughs) yeah (laughs) well you know it's such a it's so good and like I I I meant to ask you more specifically about your writing in this conversation but I we were just kind of winging it but you know it's such a you're you really are such a brilliant writer like self-reflection humor like the self-awareness that I think every anyone listening to this is understanding exists which is always refreshing I'm so red with anxiety and like <laughs> thank you <laughs> no it's absolutely brilliant and and I, I I'm I was actually I was super floored reading it like just read it like a book and was like holy shit like I knew you were great from what you wrote on the internet but then I was like but here you're getting like but you the know, internet the wasn't funny that was COVID that no. was like listen and this is exactly. like what the fuck am I doing here who is this Wes yeah, Anderson yeah, yeah. family Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's, I'm so excited for you to launch a newsletter because I would hope to see kind of that, that mix a bit. For sure. I mean, I think I've just been real terse. I mean, the whole reason I started an Instagram account when I started that job and it was private chef, but it wasn't like private chef money, like what private chefs would make. Like, and of course I have to qualify that because I'm all, I'm working class, but not really. But, (laughs) But it was such a weird an interesting place, but I started my Instagram account because I was like, I'm going somewhere very strange. And I just say that because then if anyone follows me and then they're like, wow, she's so intense about politics and hunger over the past two years. And it's like, well, it's been a pretty intense past two years, but I am (laughs) a funny person. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not that that statement, no one ever believes it when someone says it like that, but you know. No, no, no. But I mean, I think for me, I want to be thought of as as funny and, uh, and which is a terrible thing to want, I guess, because it's, it's corny, but like I, for me, it's funny because like I'll make jokes or what I think are jokes on Twitter and people will just be so serious in the replies. And I'm like, 
forget it. But then I did see a comedian today make a joke and people be very, very serious in the replies. And I was like, all right, like this is just, this is the environment in our, which we're living. <laughs> our way of communicating, and you actually wrote about this where it's like, people are like, that person's right and I agree with all of it or that yeah. person's wrong. And it's like, or we just have brains and things move is like, yeah. Jokes never come across in texting and it's real no. hard. It's real hard in any version of social media. It just doesn't work like this. And also right. then that begs to di- like we're communicating mostly with really terrible means of communication. If these things aren't conveying humor and nuance, it's pretty shitty. What good are they for? Yeah. Fights. It's They're good for fights. They're good for fights. <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask because in the introduction to that, you you wrote about choosing which cookbooks to take up with you and you 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 wanted to bring prune and then you decided not to. And I, I wanted to ask, you know, what cookbooks you would take now to an island. I mean, I've thought about this because I and I was also like, I don't feel like I've purchased a lot of new cookbooks. I would take I did just get the um Gullah Geechee home cooking. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a matriarch of an island. And that Mm -hmm. is, you need someone who is on an island because it's very specific. You don't have access to everything. Also, all of this, Emily Meggett, all of this is in my wheelhouse of kind of like a very country cooking. There's stuff, you know, there's crabs. I'm there. (laughs) I would say the Olya Hercules books, those are, I think, This is what I know about cooking on an island is that when you want to spread out a little bit or any kind of like cooking that you're doing for hire, you don't want to like jump to who you aren't. You need to kind of, for me, I need to have different ideas or variations on a theme. And like I do, I can bake, I make pie crust, like I have variations of crusts and ideas of things that I do. And I think that this cookbook, the Golagichi and Olya Hercules, there's always variations on like, she has so many doughs, you know, and things stuffed like greens and things like that. And I'm like, all right, that's a variation I can do. Yeah. I always take auberge of the flowering hearth because I just want to live there. And then <laughs> I always take the salty cookbook. I don't know if you have that one. I need it. I It was out of it's out of print. print. You better find it because I, actually, I know I have to buy a, print, a copy. I use that one the most because it's vinaigrettes, bread desserts and like it's the most crawford reference for everything and then i always take you ever read the jim harrison the writer jim harrison i have one of his books on my shelves but i haven't read it yet you know he's a big cook and hunter and Mm -hmm. he had a column in esquire called the raw and the cooked the book is all of his essays Mm -hmm. and for salty and for jim harrison i always take them with me and whenever i've opened a restaurant and i haven't been able to like see any friends forever I read them because they're my friends' voices. It's like Caroline and A.D. and Rebecca and Elizabeth and Salty. And then Jim Harrison. I mean, he is, whatever, he's an old white American male. There are going to be problems. But also, (laughs) he was a screenwriter along with a fiction and poetry writer. He has an amazing um, essay about eating with Orson Welles where they try to like both jump out of the check. And I think that there's lines of cocaine somewhere during the meal. (laughs) There's an essay about a gout flare up in the airport wearing his like favorite leather boots, you know? And so for me, cookbooks, sometimes I feel like I don't cook from them. I just like to read from them. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I would totally go with like vegan or vegan and like different baking because 
you can really stuff someone on an island. And so I think like <laughs> vegan baking, also because you can have more shelf-stable things yep. to substitute. And I don't do it enough, but I like cooking with different grains just because it gives different textures and like AP flour, just AP flour, sugar, butter, like we've all done that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in a big flour moment right now. What does that mean? <laughs> it means that it means that people were um, upset that I am always doing recipes with AP flour and not with whole grains. Yeah. But I don't have access to a whole grain flour here. So yeah. I now I have to. I'm trying to get into working with different root vegetable flat quote unquote flours. Oh, fascinating! Which are is cool and it and it's but at the same time it's like I can't. You know, when I write a recipe for like a cake, it's still going to just have AP flour in it. You know, it's just and, because I need other people to make it. <laughs> and, and that's also about access, you know, and that's something yeah. that people don't talk about that much. And when you write about um, food accessibility in Puerto Rico and when people write about like Cuba and food accessibility yeah. there, that's really important. But also the access of people anywhere, you know, and yeah. we can get anything. I mean, this is. We talked about this. We can get anything yeah. all the time. We shouldn't be able to get anything all the time. No. Yeah. Things should be exactly. harder for us. <laughs> In general, things need to be harder. And and that's a hard thing to tell people. Like, but I think that's that's like the the if like my writing has like a thesis point that I haven't explicitly articulated, it's like things need to be harder. Things need to be hard. Because guess what? They're hard for a lot of people. And yes. then we're <laughs> how many people for you to like lead your life? are exploited so you can do what you want to do. I mean, people are, and I'm not like, listen, there's nothing exploitation-free about me, but yeah, I think about it a lot. And consumption for me now, I mean, I do, is I'm finding how there's a shift in me where it's just what used to be satisfying isn't necessarily satisfying for me. No, absolutely. I drink tea now. Instead of coffee? Yeah, I mean, I'm now I think I'm back to a cup of coffee a day maybe, but I have, <laughs> that was just like the past two days. I was like, come on, let's get some life back into us. But yeah, I had <laughs> COVID in December and I had it again in March and I was like, tea tastes so nice. But I mean, I mean, I used to like <laughs> drink so much coffee and smoke a pack a day and like drink bourbon, you know, like, but something's, and that wasn't like right before the pandemic, but I'm just saying like, I've noticed the things I liked shutdown. I'm going to say something yeah. real and popular. I like shutdown. Yeah. I liked being, I also had a different life for everyone where I went outside and worked and my uh, partner's a musician. So I had live music every week for, for his mm -hmm. Instagram show. But the like stretching everything and being really intentional and all of that and not getting to have whatever and really um, having social interactions sustain me and for longer than they used to. Like everything was way more meaningful and yeah, and I really appreciate that. And I, I hope that some of that has stayed with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you define abundance? I think enough, you yeah. know, yeah, the feeling of enough, because I think the feeling of enough is kind of a like contentment. Yeah. Because abundance is dangerous. Look at all the everyone who has abundance, it's never enough. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? No. Yeah. I think this question is about being, you know, redefining abundance to mean I have enough because like we're talking about so many people do not have enough. And so trying to reframe the thinking around 
what that means is I think a powerful tool, imaginary tool for it's, for reconsidering. Yeah. I think what they're calling it now, Alicia, is a perspective shift. Yes. A consciousness <laughs> shift or consciousness raising. But <laughs> I am not going to say that working at a food pantry makes me feel good about myself or like I've done anything right. good, but it has recalibrated what I think about my life. Yeah. You yeah. know? Well, and for you in in general, is cooking a political act? I don't think cooking is, but I think feeding is. Yes, yes. And I think that they're that's, different and that's got to be talked about more. Because cooking's, no. I think, people, <laughs> I think people pat themselves on the back too much thinking they're doing something political. And I know years ago, a friend of mine, we were catering like it was a um, social justice food award that this Episcopal Church in Long Island gave out. And, and I was all, I work in restaurants and we buy from farms and I'm, I grew up on a farm and I know. And I remember uh, one of the farmers, he was from Iowa and he was talking about how worried they were because they'd heard that white supremacists had moved into the neighboring county. And so they're just really worried about the people who worked on their farm. And I heard his speech and I was just, and this was before Trump was in office. You know, this was, this was in, let's just say before Trump was in office. And I remember feeling humbled and being like, you don't know shit, Millicent, you know, and like money's politics, but systems are, money needs to be systematic for it to be political, you know? I think that's so important and that, that, the, that uh, you allowed yourself to be humbled and have that change your approach to things is such a rare, <laughs> I think a rare characteristic to encounter. I'm humbled all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. This has been so, thank you. So great. And, and yes, it's been interesting, of course, that I've like just get to meet people over Zoom and record it that I've just wanted to talk to. And so this was one of there where I'm just like, I just really want to talk to Melissa. And so here we are. <laughs> well, you know, when you come, when you come to town, we'll get some tea or a martini. Okay. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy.